As the elder board at Mission Covenant Church was prayerfully considering a theme for 2021, what do we need to focus on for this next year, we were asking ourselves. What do people need to hear? What would be the most beneficial aspect of our faith to talk about and zero in on that would help people grow in their faith and would help others come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And as we prayed over the weeks and meditated on this, as we read scripture and we sought God's leading, uh, there seemed to be a, a theme that started coalescing around focusing on the gospel. And one of our church leaders mentioned that the parachurch ministries that he was the closest to were all going back to the basics. In these crazy times we're living in, they were simply focusing on the gospel. They were just telling people about Jesus. Another one of our leaders said that God had laid upon her heart the need to focus on the gospel as well. And the verse that God had given her that she believed should be the theme verse for our year was Luke chapter 2, verse 10. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. At that moment, our elder board, our pastors, our church chair and vice chair, we all looked around the room like, that's it. That's it. Focus on the gospel, the good news that brings great joy for all people because we need good news. Our world needs good news now more than ever. So many people have actually quit watching the news because there's never any good news. It's just negative. It's critical. It's fear-mongering. One of our church members told me after last Sunday's first service that I'm just so tired of all the statistics. Do they constantly have to keep putting that out there like that every single day? Well, I told this man at seminary that they taught us to never preach using statistics. In fact, they said that you can make statistics say whatever you want them to say. And one of our professors in seminary, to prove that point, preached a powerful sermon on one statistic. Then the next class, he turned around and preached a powerful sermon the opposite direction on the very same statistic. People right now, are tired of all the bad news. They're tired of hearing it over and over, and they're beginning to separate themselves from the news media. And news agencies unknowingly have painted themselves with all of their negativity into a corner of irrelevancy. The world needs good news now more than ever. Do you remember some of the first early translations, English translations, of the Bible, of the New Testament, of Luke chapter 2, verse 10. In fact, many of these this early translations of this particular verse even started showing up in Christmas carols. Do you remember how, what it used to say? Instead of saying, I bring you good news, it would say, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all people. Well, what are tidings? Tidings is news. Tidings is information, but it's information of the best kind. It's good information. It's good news. And our world so desperately longs for good tidings right now, the good news of the gospel. And it's our responsibility to share it with others so they can hear it. And here's what the angel said, paraphrasing on that first Christmas Eve in Luke chapter 2, verse 10. The good news of the gospel 
is for everyone, which is, by the way, why critics of the Bible have often attacked the gospel of Luke so intensely and harshly over the years because it so clearly highlights the gospel being for all people. Luke was a brilliant writer. Even though he was a physician and a Greek, he could connect with people from many walks of life. He could connect with Jews, with Gentiles, with men, women, and children, with slaves, with Romans, with Greeks, those that were educated, those that were uneducated. Luke had just incredible ability that God had given him to relate to all of these different people groups. And Luke presents 20 miracles in his gospel, with six of them not being recorded in any of the other gospels. Likewise, he gives us 23 parables, with 18 of those parables not showing up in any of the other gospels. And I'll just give you two examples of those, the parable of the Good Samaritan and the parable of the prodigal son. Those are two of those 18 that don't show up in any of the other gospels. And of the four gospels, Luke's gospel is the most historic, complete, complete historical narrative. There are more wide-reaching references to institutions, to customs, to geography, and to history in that period than are found in any of the other gospels. And you have to understand, that is saying something. You know, from the 20th century authors and historians, Will and Ariel Durant, who devoted 40 years of their life studying 20 different civilizations covering 400 year span, 4,000 year span, excuse me, 4,000 year span of human history, they made the following observations about history in a book they wrote from their 40 years of research. And they called the book, The Lessons of History. Here's one of the things they said. Our knowledge of the past is always incomplete, clouded by ambivalent evidence, biased historians, and patriotic and religious partisanship. They said, most of history is guesswork and the rest is prejudice. That comes from two people who devoted their life to studying history. Well, at the close of the 19th century, a wave of skepticism swept over Europe and over the British Isles, which is fascinating, isn't it? When you think just a few decades after that, you had World War I, and a couple decades later, World War II. The skepticism comes along, and all of a sudden, everything goes chaos. It goes haywire. Well, in England, there was a lot of disappointment at that time with the optimism of the Victorian era and, 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 and what that had promoted. Now, Queen Victoria, in her 50-plus years uh, of being uh, you know, head at, in England behind the king, uh, they created the middle class during that period. But what they also created was snobbery, high-mindedness, and elitist attitudes. And unfortunately, the Bible was used as a handbook for the Victorian era. And any time the Bible is used politically, no matter where you come from, it usually has dire consequences. And this caused many serious scholars, many serious academics and intellectuals to begin questioning the Bible. Among them was a brilliant scholar at Cambridge named William Ramsey, who was a skeptic and an agnostic who set out to disprove the accuracy of the Bible. And in so doing, he went right for the juggler vein. He knew that Luke had written a historical account of Jesus in his gospel and of the missionary journeys of Paul in the book of Acts. And he also knew that historians uh, notoriously 
make mistakes, and they are often biased, especially those that are the religious types. So he went as an archaeologist to what was ancient Asia Minor in biblical times to disprove Dr. Luke's accounts. He carefully followed the journeys of the Apostle Paul, and he made a thorough study of every location, and he came to the conclusion that Dr. Luke had not committed a single historical inaccuracy. In fact, like other later skeptics, agnostics, and atheists, like Gary Habermas, Josh McDowell, and Lee Strobel, just to name a few, who studied all of the evidence, Ramsey, just like them, set out to disprove the Bible, and he ended up becoming a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and has written some classical works about the Gospels and the missionary travels of the Apostle Paul. A believer uh, in, a, in, the very, uh, in the one who he set out to disprove, all because of the historical accuracy of the gospel of Dr. Luke in Luke's gospel. Now, the good news of the gospel is for everyone, even its biggest critics, skeptics, and naysaying agnostics and atheists. Now, part of our discussion today must include how the good news was brought into this world because it came in humility. And Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 are part there of a five-verse section that were actually an early church song that was sung in the early church. We wish we had the music for this, you know, in our present modern-day 21st century church because it would be so cool to be able to sing what they used to sing as they gathered together in worship. But verses 6 and 7 of this text uh, tell us uh, and highlight this truth very well, that the gospel came to us in humility. Christ Jesus, which comes from verse 5, says there, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. This is the way our Savior came into the world, in humility, laying aside his glory. Now, John 1.1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The very word of God humbled himself to come as a baby to not even be able to utter a word. Did you hear that? The very word of God became a baby who came and couldn't even utter a word. God could have entered the world in any way that he would have wanted, certainly in power and glory triumphantly as many wanted him to at that time. And as we're looking forward to him coming back at the second coming, but he chose to come in the weakest, most humble way possible, as a baby. Now, there should have been more than just barn animals and a few shepherds and angels to welcome him. All of creation should have been there. Caesar, uh, instead of being bent on collecting taxes, should have traveled to Bethlehem to worship the Christ. And Jesus could have forced him to do that very thing, but he didn't. Jesus laid aside his prerogatives as God, as God in order to bring the good news, the gospel to the world. Now, another aspect here of this humility that's noteworthy is that the stable itself was in all likelihood attached to a home, and the animals were on a lower level. Many times it was on the backside of a home, sometimes depending on, on the topography of, of, of where the home might be, it would be sometimes on the, on the side of the house, but most of the time it would be on the back house, and it was lower than the main floor 
in the home itself, sort of like attached garages in our culture that are lower because we want to keep undesirable things from coming into our houses, our homes. Well, Jesus was laid lower than the very people he came to save. And Dr. Luke is going to great lengths to show us the humanity of Jesus. He knows us. Jesus knows you and he knows me because he became one of us. And the birth of Jesus reveals God's faithfulness to mankind as well as his heart and character. God completely identified with us as human beings in order to save us. And in that sense, Jesus' story is our story because he became nothing, which is exactly what we are, so that we could become something, a child of God. The most exalted figure ever born on earth, who had the greatest following historically of anyone who was ever born, and I, I, I believe if you numbered it from the time that Christ was here on earth till today, presently, all over the world, that would number up into the billions. This person, the most significant figure ever born, had a humble birth. Truly, the good news of the gospel is for everyone. And we see this clearly in the reference to shepherds in Luke's gospel. Shepherds in that area, era were considered untrustworthy. Their profession made them ceremonially unclean and, and unable most of the time to uh, go to any of the temple worship or purification rituals to even experience any of that ceremonial cleansing. They were also very poorly educated, often illiterate, and were not even considered to be reliable witnesses. In fact, they weren't allowed to testify in court because they were considered so unreliable. And people's attitudes toward them in Israel was probably similar to many people's attitudes toward the homeless in our culture right now. Many who are living on streets and in parks in our major cities right now, in tents and in cardboard boxes, leaving behind human waste and garbage and just unsightly in appearance and their personal hygiene falls short. Now, what would you think if God chose to promote his second coming through homeless people? If God appeared to homeless people and they would become the first eyewitnesses to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They would be the first ambassadors and eyewitnesses and evangelists of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you get the picture? That's what it was like. The gospel of Jesus Christ came first to the social outcasts of Jesus' day. And that message must not get lost on us. The good news of the gospel is for everyone. Good news of great joy that will be for all people. But there's more symbolism here than that, even that. The sheep that were grazing close to Jerusalem would have all been for the Passover, for the sacrifice at the temple, as well as for each family to participate in the Passover meal. In fact, rabbis of that era had given instructions and even edicts to that end. All other sheep were raised in outlying areas of Israel, in the wilderness. But the sheep that were for the Passover and the Passover meal were right there between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, just a mere four or five miles apart. Now, there's more here as well. Do you remember that the Messiah was going to come through the line of David? What was David's uh, livelihood as a young teenager before he was 
you know, appointed as God and anointed as God as the king over his. He was what? He was a shepherd, wasn't he? In fact, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8, the prophet Samuel is instructed by God with these words. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. You were one of those social outcasts, David, one of those despised people in the culture, and I made you ruler over my people Israel. And you could say as well that, that you know, from his offspring was going to come the Messiah from the offspring of a shepherd at that time. And, you know, both the Old and New Testaments symbolize that those who care from, for God's people are called what? They're called shepherds. This is what the word pastor actually means in the New Testament. It means shepherd. And theologically speaking, pastors are under shepherds of the great shepherd or the good shepherd. And the most famous psalm in the Old Testament that people know very well and recognize it immediately when they hear it read or recited, Psalm 23, it begins with what? The Lord is my shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd. And yet when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to be baptized there uh, in, in, the, in the Jordan, by the Jordan River there, he said in John 1.29, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the Lamb of God is being born in Bethlehem, right where these sheep are being taken care of, who are going to be for the Passover, but he's also the good shepherd. And John 10.11 says that I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then we have, in Luke's gospel, the parable of the lost sheep. And the message there is that we're to go out and look for lost sheep, because this is what Jesus came to do. It says that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. So the context of Luke 15 is you have the parable of a lost sheep. You have the parable of a lost coin, and then you have the parable of what we know as the prodigal son, or better yet, as most people say, the lost son. So you have a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And each of these parables show the links that God will go to reach us because the gospel, the good news of the gospel is for everyone. Now, what is fascinating in this passage is that shepherds were hardy people. They were brave people. In our culture, we'd say they're gutsy. They're gutsy. They're tough people. They lived much of the year in the wilderness. They lived in the elements, dealing with restless sheep and then fending off predators, which most of the time were wolves, lions, and bears. And it says here in this passage that they were keeping watch, meaning that they were very alert and they were taking turns. Usually a watch was three hours long during uh, the night. And so there must have been multiple shepherds here, and they were each taking turns, a three-hour shift, and would rest and sleep the rest of the time. And their senses were keen from doing this, you know, every single day. They knew almost intuitively when something didn't look right or something didn't sound right. Let's pick up the story here in verses 8 and 9 of Luke chapter 2. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. So these brave witnesses were terrified. And again, 
If someone was making up this story, they would never choose to use shepherds as witnesses in the first place because of their bad reputations, because they weren't considered reliable witnesses. The only reason to include this in this account is because it's true, because it really happened. It really happened this way. And other than soldiers in this culture, no one was more courageous than shepherds were. And they faced down bears and lions and, and wolves without all the weapons that, that soldiers even had. And yet it tells us in this text, because of this divine encounter that they have, that they're terrified. Look at verses 10 and 11. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Now, Luke is really sharp about the culture that he's writing to. Savior in the Greek culture had a number of connotations. Doctors were called saviors. Rulers would be called saviors. Philosophers and the like would be called saviors in that time frame. So he makes sure to identify Jesus Christ as the savior, yes, but as the Christ, the Christos in the Greek language, the anointed one. And Jewish readers and listeners would recognize immediately that this is talking about the Messiah. And then he mentions the Lord there, who was the master. And again, the Old Testament connotation of that is Yahweh. Yahweh is the Lord. Dr. Luke really covered all of his bases here. Verse 12 continues to verse 17. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had told them, been told them about the child. They shared what God had shown them, which happens to be our same mission in life. This is why it's going to be our focus in 2021 here at Mission Covenant Church. We're going to encourage and even challenge people to share their faith because it's good news. We're going to encourage people to go back to the basics, to pass on what has been passed on to you, the good news, to tell others simply about Jesus. You know, in these fear-filled times that people find themselves living in, where people are longing for more than conspiracy theories, more for the, than the latest news sound bites. Uh, they want more than the shout-downs and the put-downs and the angry art outbursts and the narcissism that's all out there on social media. People are hungering for some good news, so give it to them. Tell them about Jesus. You may actually be surprised at how powerful the impact will be. It will be absolutely life-changing for some. Look at verses 18 through 20. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. The very first evangelists we find here in the Bible were shepherds. And when people heard what they had to say about Jesus, they were amazed. That means there was an enthusiastic 
response. Shepherds were the ancient version of the modern-day metaphor that says that we all, as servants of Christ, are simply just one beggar telling another beggar where we found food. Or sticking with our analogy from earlier homeless people, we are simply people living in our earthly tents, our human bodies, our temporary dwelling places who are telling other people who live in their earthly tents, their temporary dwelling places, their bodies, that if they let Jesus be their good shepherd, that they too will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, I just finished reading the book Chosen Suffering by Tom Ryan. I think we have a slide of that right now. A friend had given it to me just before Christmas as a gift and encouraged me to read it and, and sent a nice note in there talking about how Cindy and I had, uh, had experienced a lot of chosen suffering in our life and how we had also experienced unchosen suffering. Chosen suffering is where you choose to uh, devote yourself to something. Like for 10 years, I was a pole vaulter. And six of those years, I trained very, very hard. That's chosen suffering, what you go through to try to achieve and accomplish or, or to get good at a certain skill or ability or, or what it is, whatever it is in life that you're gifted to do. And unchosen suffering is when bad things happen to us in life. Like when my father passed away when I was five years old. Or when Cindy and I had a daughter with disability issues. Or this last year, when our daughter with disability issues ended up homeless and was on the streets of Minneapolis. And when I ended up with a brain tumor and an arteriovascular malformation and surgery. Those are unchosen things that we would never choose in life or never choose for anybody else in life. Well, I was so busy when I got this book. In fact, I had four messages to put together in eight days because in 11 days stretch of time, I'd have to share those four different messages in nine different services. And I'm trying to squeeze in some family time around all of that. So I, I really didn't have time to read this book, but I happened to pick it up one morning to just read a chapter along with my devotions. And I had a hard time putting the book down. In fact, I punched out the book in three days in one of the busiest stretches in my life uh, because it's one of those where you want to know what the next chapter says, the next chapter says. So every spare minute I had, I was reading the book. Well, Tom Ryan happened to be a very successful Division I wrestler in the late 1980s and early 1990s, a two-time All-American, finished second in the nation, third in the nation. He was ahead with 15 seconds to go in the national championship his junior year, seven to six, and ended up losing uh, by one point, eight to seven. And he's coached the national champion Ohio State team, He's also coached in the four national runner-up titles, and only 12 teams in Division I wrestling history have ever won a national title. So it's basically a cluster of, of teams at the top that are the best, and everybody else is vying for uh, lower places. He's also coached a four-time individual national champion, which is rare because only four people have ever done that. In fact, you want to know an interesting fact? More people have walked on the moon then have won four Division I wrestling championships. Well, this book happens to be Tom Ryan's testimony because he wasn't a believer. And he had four children. His youngest son, Teague, was five years old, and he died in his arms of natural causes. His wife was playing with him in the house, running around playing hide and seek, and all of a sudden, he started turning blue and collapsed. 
And they're trying to revive him right there on the coffee table. They called an ambulance. It took 14 minutes for the ambulance to get there where they lived in Long Island, New York. And he heard the sirens coming. He grabbed his son. He runs out the door to get out there, running down the street to get to the ambulance, only to find out that it was a police car that was coming to a different call. And so he turns around with his purple child in his arms, runs back into the house to the coffee table to put the child back down there and to continue to try to resuscitate their son. Well, friends ended up coming to watch their children. They followed the ambulance to the hospital. After a two-hour ordeal, the doctors told them that there was nothing they could do. And when they came home, the children came rushing out of the house. And they said to their dad, they watched him die in his arms. And they asked him the question, where is Teague? And Tom Ryan had no answer for his children. This was a man who in his 36 years of life never had time for God. But his children's questions haunted him. So he went on a quest with all the tenacity in the world of a world-class wrestler and world-class coach to try and discover if God is real or not. He studied evolution forward and backward. He studied the writings of agnostics and skeptics and atheists. He also read a lot of Christian material. He, the works of C.S. Lewis, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. He read and studied the Bible, and specifically people told him to study the Gospel of John. Nearly two years later in this quest, he came to the conclusion that it actually took more faith to not believe in God than it took to believe in God. In the end, he ended up like many other doubters, coming to Christ. He became a believer. Now, instead of just being well-known and a world-class wrestling coach, he tells people the good news of Jesus. He shares with others what he has been shown. And many things in this book fascinated me, including the interactive questions to ponder at the end of each chapter. I spent some time on it, but honestly, I'm going to go back and go through those questions. I might even uh, do some of those questions with my wife together introspectively because it's that powerful. But one of the things that really stood out to me uh, when I read this book was when Tom Ryan, who began his investigation when he was 36 years old to discover if God was real or not, and eventually concluded that he was, when he came to that understanding, he could clearly remember the three people in his lifetime who shared the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ with him when he had no interest in God at all. One of them was an uncle. One of them was a college teammate. And one of them was a minister, a priest, who got on a near-empty Greyhound bus that Tom Ryan was riding, traveling home, going home for Christmas uh, during his redshirt year at the University of Iowa. He only got a a handful of days to be at home, so he's riding this Greyhound bus. There aren't many people on the bus, and what does this priest do? He comes out and sits right next to him, and he shares the good news intentionally with him, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world needs good news now more than ever, and it's our job to share it because the good news of the gospel is for everyone. Would you please pray with me? God, our Father, we are grateful for this journey that you have led us as a church to approach and go on this year in 2021. We've just come through 2020, 
with all of the bad news. We've experienced that as a nation, as a culture. Some of us personally have experienced some of the worst news we've ever had in our lives. And Lord, you're inviting us now to go back to the basics, to go back to the gospel of Jesus, the good news that's for all people, that which brings real joy and true joy in life, not happiness necessarily, but that's part of it, but certainly true joy. We look forward, God, to all that you have for us this year. But Lord, the challenge today that we've got a message that so many others need to hear. And yes, they may not embrace Christ at that moment, but like in the case of Tom Ryan, it all came back to him years later. So God, may we be faithful as your witnesses in this world. In Jesus' name.